at WAGP.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. So glad we could be with you today. We've been gone a few Tuesdays due to funerals and other things that sometimes happen, but we're so pleased to be here in the studio today and we're welcoming your phone calls or your emails and texts. Uh, You can call us directly at 877-WAGP, the call letters, WAGP 980, or you can use our 843 number and the 843 number is 525-1859. Or you can, if you'd like, uh, just text us or email us at TBL for the Bible line at WAGP.net. If you're joining us for the first time for the next hour, we'll be taking people's questions uh, as they've been studying the Bible. Maybe they want biblical counsel as it relates to their personal life or ministry. And if we can be of help, well, by God's grace, we will try to respond. When you call, you can uh, go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply uh, dictate your question, and it will pop up here uh, in front of Rick, and he'll read me the question. So let's go ahead, Rick, and we'll begin this morning. All right, Pastor. uh, Ryan from Charlotte, North Carolina writes, could you give your thoughts and comments on physical fitness and health in the life of a Christian? It's something I've been thinking some recently. I think it's an area that the large part of the church has ignored. I understand the temptation to make fitness an idol, and it seems that's why many ignore it. I also understand the Lord looks at the heart while man looks at the body. But if the body is the temple, should we not strive to take care of it as best we can? I feel we as Christians jump to one extreme and ignore the balance of the other. Uh, Plus, I think there are biblical examples in both the Old Testament and New Testament of saints who model this. Curious to hear your thoughts. Well, it's a great question, and it's one that we shouldn't ignore because uh, the Bible speaks to the whole person, mind, soul, and spirit, and our salvation actually incorporates all three dimensions. Obviously, we live in a fallen world with fallen bodies, and some people are subject to sickness that other people won't necessarily encounter, but a lot of the problems that we bring upon ourselves Uh, we have uh, produced. They're the result of the dirty wells we've drunk or the bad seed that we've planted. And that's certainly true, not just in the spiritual realm, but in the physical realm. You know, many Christians are digging their own grave with a spoon. And so if you are significantly overweight, uh, that can be a problem. It can create, you know, diabetes. Diabetes are rampant now in the United States, especially among teenagers and children. Uh, That was not a problem when I was a child, but it's certainly become a problem because I think a lot of kids get more exercise with their fingers and thumbs than they do with their legs. Uh, They've become so glued to uh, video games and email and 
Facebook and all the social medias that they just don't know how to get out and ride a bicycle or run or get exercise. And certainly as parents, that's part of our responsibility. Uh, one, to model by example, physical fitness, and two, to encourage our children to be physically fit. Uh, the question, though, concerns, well, what does the Bible say on it? Well, you know, there's a life verse that some people may use, but they use it out of context. It's found in First uh, Timothy chapter 4, and I've just turned there. It says in verse 8, for bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things. So somebody's saying, oh, yeah, a little profit. Well, understand the society in which the Apostle Paul wrote this. If you were a Christian living in the first century and you were going to go to church on the Lord's Day, how'd you get there? Well, you either walked or uh, you strapped a saddle on your donkey or horse and you uh, went there. But there was exercise involved. If you wanted to have a meal, how'd you eat that meal? Well, you had to gather the firewood and uh, prep a fire and uh, make the food. Uh, if you, um, you know, we could go on and on. If you wanted to take a hot bath, you had to boil the water. Uh, there was a built-in exercise pro program in the first century. If you had to wash your clothes, you didn't throw them in the washing machine. You went down to the river and you scrubbed them by hand. And so as Christians, we need to recognize that when Paul says that, he is really saying it largely in a Roman Gre Greco culture that worshiped the body. And there were people who gave so much attention to the physical realm, much like there are people today, you know, getting a certain muscle to flex a certain way where it becomes almost an extreme. And in the process, they neglect the most important things. And so he says for bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things. Now, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Paul will write to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, or don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you're not your own. You've been bought with a price, and therefore you are exhorted, you're called, commanded to glorify God in your body. And the body is the delivery system that God uses in which to serve him. So if, you know, you've abused the body with drugs or alcohol, if you've uh, abused the body through gluttony and you don't have the physical stamina to be able to uh, serve the Lord or to take the gospel where it needs to go, then you've really short-circuited what God wants to do in your life. Uh, in the book of 3 John, let me just turn there for just a second. Um, in 3 John, there is an interesting little um, exhortation. Here it is. It says, Beloved, I pray that in all respects, in all respects, you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. So it's a greeting. It's an opening greeting that he gives to Gaius. And, and it really is two-sided, spiritual and physical. And so sometimes people focus on the spiritual and they neglect the physical. And then if you really evaluate it, then they're not in the fullest sense focusing on the spiritual. I mean, if I say, well, I'm going to have a quiet time every day and I'm a hundred pounds overweight, then, you know, have I really focused on the spiritual in a healthy way? You know, I, I think sometimes we uh, lower our standards in church leadership. One of the requirements, it's not a suggestion, it's a requirement for a pastor and elder 
a deacon in the church is that he must exercise self-control. So if I, as a pastor say, well, you know, you need to exercise uh, self-control and I am a hundred pounds overweight. Have I really, you know, preached a double standard? Yes, I have. It would be hip- hypocrisy for me to say that. I know in some rare cases, maybe somebody has some thyroid issue and their metabolism is out of sync and, you know, but for the most part, if I'm a glutton, I'm not exercising self-control and I'm really disqualifying myself from leadership in the church, which we are to model. So this is an important question. You need to take care of yourself. And, uh, you know, when you look at the life of Christ and you see just where he walked and where he went, he was a man in great physical condition. When you study the life of the apostle Paul, one of the greatest Christians who ever lived, he was a man in great physical shape. Otherwise he could not have accomplished what he accomplished. Now, certainly on one of his missionary journeys, he picked up some kind of physical ailment. If I were to make a theological guess over his thorn in the flesh, though I wouldn't be dogmatic over this because the Bible doesn't affirmatively absolutely tell us. My guess is it was the eye problem that he no doubt picked up going through the Galatian region that was known for malaria. Um, But still, he was a man in incredible physical condition to achieve the missionary journeys that he achieved in his life. And so some of us don't have energy to serve in the local assembly because we've abused our bodies. Well, you know, today's the first day of the rest of your life and you can begin to undo maybe some of the bad choices you've made and ask God uh, for his help and his grace to begin to change uh, that area of your life. Uh, thanks for the question. I appreciate it from Charlotte. Let's go to the next one. All righty. Um, Sarah writes, I know that there are still a lot of people who have never heard the gospel or had the Bible translated into their native tongue. Uh, do you know of some ministries that are doing things to reach out to these people? Yes. Um, we as a church uh, have over 300 missionaries that we support on a monthly basis. And uh, one of the missionaries that we support, his name is Dan Scribner. He is with the uh, Joshua Project. I've known Dan for a long time. Um, He's one of the missionaries that um, I actually asked him to allow us to partner with him. He graduated number one in his class from Duke University. He's an incredibly bright young man. And uh, he was involved in our ministry when we were on staff with uh, Campus Crusade at Duke in the 1980s. And he uh, decided that God was calling him into full-time ministry. And he uh, actually served with Campus Crusade for a couple of years. And a thing they called back then, stop out, where you stop out. And in the process, God called him to uh, work with the U.S. Center for World Missions. And one dimension and uh, subsect of that is called the Joshua Project. And he spent uh, the first 20 years of his ministry basically cataloging every unreached people group in the world. And he wanted to create a database so that mission agencies around the world could utilize that. So if uh, you had, say, someone with uh, the PCA missions or Southern Baptists and they're thinking about sending, you know, a missionary to a given spot, well, there's no sense in duplicating uh, two people in the same spot when maybe there's a hundred places where there is no quit Christian witness at all. 
So one, they cataloged all the unreached people groups and which ones, um, uh, you know, were in play in terms of having a translation of the Bible in in their hands. There's about 6,000 uh, languages in the world today, languages and dialects. Now, some groups are smaller, you know, where maybe they have 30,000 people that speak a given language. And then some groups obviously are much larger, but God cares about these people, big or small. And so there was a time when uh, mission agencies like Wycliffe Bible Translators, and I think we have about 10 people that our church supports with Wycliffe, uh, they had projected, you know, 2051 as the target date in which they would have all the languages of the world in some form translated for a partial uh, portion of the Bible or a complete Bible. So when we talk about the 6,000 languages, um, there are approximately 4,000 languages that have some form of the Bible in their hand. It might be just the gospel of John. It might be the entire new Testament. It might be the entire Bible. Uh, so there's still a couple of thousand languages to go, but because of uh, now the computer and software that's been developed, the target goal now to complete all the languages of the world is 2025. So they've cut that basically in half. So they're saying in another eight years, all the languages of the world will have some kind of translation of God's word. So Joshua Project, along with Wycliffe Bible Translators, one catalogs the languages and focuses on the need and the other tries to meet that need. There are certainly not the only organizations, but those would be two that if you're looking for uh, someone to support financially, they would be worthy of your financial support. Or if you're considering yourself uh, maybe having a part in helping the process of Bible translation. The Great Commission will be fulfilled, and it will certainly be fulfilled if in no other way during the time of the Great Tribulation. Uh, Jesus said this in the Olivet Discourse, that the gospel would go to the entire world and then the end would come. Now the end he's referring there is the second coming, not the rapture. The rapture precedes the second coming. So nothing has to happen for, for the rapture of the church to unfold. But the second coming that follows the rapture, there's a lot that has to happen. But again, the fact that Bible translation has seen so many victories and it's accelerating so fast reminds me that the uh, prophecy that Jesus made in reference to the second coming is getting that much closer. But lay that aside in Revelation 14, the Bible is clear that there will be an angel. It's the only time in all the uh, Bible and all, in all of biblical history where an angel is actually engaged in preaching the gospel. God doesn't use angels to preach the gospel in this uh, age. Right now he's using people who have been saved by grace to do that. But that, uh, etern that angel preaching an eternal gospel in Revelation 14 will finish the process. And God will communicate the gospel through that angel to every tribe, tongue, nation, and people uh, in that final uh, seven-year segment that we call the age of the great, uh, the age of the tribulation, 
for the tribulation period? Great question. Appreciate your thinking with a worldview and with missions in mind, because God has called us all to be world Christians, not worldly, but world Christians in terms of taking the gospel to the world. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line and a listener would like you to please explain 1 Corinthians 15:28. Let me just turn there for a moment. 1 Corinthians 15 is the uh, great resurrection chapter in all the Bible and it's a it's a powerful powerful chapter that uh, really spells out the the hope and by hope I don't mean something that's tentative, but something that is sure. The Greek word elpidis or elpidos is the word that has rendered hope in the New Testament. And it speaks of something that is sure and certain and guaranteed. And that's what Paul is preaching on in this great chapter. He opens it. I made known to you, brethren, the gospel, which I preached to you, by which you also received in which you also stand by which you are saved. And he said, I delivered to you in verse three as of first importance, what I received. And then he spells out the gospel in three words. It's death, burial and resurrection. So if anyone ever asks you what the gospel is, you ought to be able to say in three words, death, burial and resurrection. Not what gospel is, what, but what the gospel is. It's articular here. And so the word gospel just means good news. And sometimes it's used in a broad sense in the New Testament of just some good news that someone is sharing. Uh, It's a religious word in our day, but it was not certainly a religious word necessarily in the first century. If I was a soldier, my gospel might be the war is over. If I were a student, my gospel might be I got an A on the exam. If I were married, my gospel might be we're going to have a baby. Just meant good news. When you put the word thought in front of it, it changes everything. If I ask you for a pen, you could give me for any pen that you could find within arm's length. But if I ask you for the pen, then you know I have a specific pen in mind. The gospels that Christ died, was buried, and was raised from the dead. And so then he goes on and he affirms that message by preaching on the resurrection of Christ and its significance to us as a believer. He says in verse 12, if, if Christ is preached, that he's been raised from the dead. How do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So the, the, the central tenet of the Christian faith is the resurrection. The crucifixion is meaningless apart from the resurrection. If Christ simply died and was not raised, then his death was meaningless and it was sufficient to save absolutely no one. Um, But because he was raised um, and is now reigning at the right hand of the father, he can go on in verse 25, which comes into the purview of your question for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. I, I love it that God personifies death as an enemy. And that's really what it is. I hate death. I've done hundreds and hundreds of funerals as a pastor. And I, I just hate death. I, I know how painful it is. Um, but on the other hand, I know that God has overcome death. He will say at the end of this chapter, he will quote the old Testament and he says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? It's a rhetorical 
question of sorts. Uh, it, it's lost its power. It's lost its victory. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Christ Jesus, our Lord. I was stung a few months ago. Uh, there was um, a hornet's nest of sorts, or I don't know if they were dirt daubers or just what they were, but I decided I wasn't going to spray them. I was just going to hit them with a broom and knock down the nest and then run. But one of them got me, unfortunately. Uh, but when he stung me and his stinger was left in my arm, he lost his power. He was a done baby. That, 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 that bee, that hornet, would never be able to sting again because he had lost its power. Now, it hurt in my arm for a few minutes, but that bee had lost its power. And so it is with death. Jesus ripped out the stinger. It's still painful when you have to deal with someone who's lost a loved one or if you've lost a loved one. But Jesus pulled the stinger out. Uh, He has conquered death. And so he says here, the last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. And when all things are subjected to him, then the son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, that God may be all in all. So Christ is ruling and reigning victoriously. Someday that, that victory that he accomplished at the cross will be totally realized at his second coming when all of his enemies, including death, will be under subjection to his feet. And, and then he himself will continue to live in the eternal subjection as God the Son. Within the Godhead, there's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And the Bible teaches that Christ lives in subjection to the Father. It's not an issue of equality. It's an issue of role. And so if you remember in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, he says, now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. Now, if you have any kind of sound biblical Christology, then you know that the father and the son are equal. The Bible repeatedly over and over teaches that. And yet it says here that Christ is in subjection to Theos, to God the Father. Um, just as a woman is in subjection to her husband. The, men and the, the man and the woman are equal. They are, one is not greater than the other, but the woman recognizes her husband as the head. And even so within the Trinity, and Paul reaffirms this in the 15th chapter to remind us that Christ will continue to live in subjection to the Father. That's a great question, and uh, I, I certainly appreciate it. Let's go to the next one. Very good. Uh, 525-1859, if you have a question on today's Bible line. And our next caller would like you to please explain what the Sabbath day uh, that honors God looks like in the form of work, recreation, and, uh, well, we actually have a live caller. We always give preference to live callers, so let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You are on the Bible line. Good morning, Pastor Brogy. Thank you for taking my call. Happy to. 
Uh, actually, I got two questions, and then I'll uh, hang up. Uh, the first question is, uh, I was talking to someone who was curious as to uh, what are the roles of elders, because I know at CBC y'all have elders and you have deacons, and so they were coming from a Baptist background. They were talking about trustees. I asked, what are trustees? And they said, well, you know, somebody that handles the finances and stuff. And I said, well, you know, no, as far as I'm I'm aware, the elders at, at CBC, they're, you know, in charge of, you know, uh, the uh, leadership, et cetera. So I was wondering if you could explain, you know, what the elders do, the difference between them and the deacons. And uh, also, on the second question, if, if you get to it, uh, what are your thoughts on the new movie coming out, The Shack, based on the book? All right. A lot of questions here. So let me, let me deal at least with the first one. And when the movie comes out, we're going to be uh, just covered over with questions on the shack. So I'll just hold off on that one. But uh, the office of elder and deacon are one of two offices that were ongoing after the death of the apostles. Uh, there were some other offices in the early church that were foundational offices like the office of apostle. Now there is a gift of apostle that continues today, but the office of apostle was unique to the first century to be an apostle. You had to have seen the risen Lord had been personally selected by Christ to be an apostle. And if those things were true, then you would do the signs, wonders, and miracles that only an apostle could do. And in fact, we've covered this recently in our Wednesday night series on pneumatology. Um, but there are two ongoing offices in the New Testament church, and that's the office of elder and deacon. So, for instance, Paul writes um, in Philippians chapter 1, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Now the word overseer, the word uh, bishop, the word pastor, the word elder are used interchangeably in the New Testament. They're referring to the same office. Now I know in some denominational structures they have a, a distinction say between a bishop and a pastor or a bishop and an elder. But in the New Testament, they're used interchangeably. For instance, um, Paul will write in 1 Timothy chapter 3, where he's giving the qualifications for an elder. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work that he desires to do. An overseer must then be above reproach. And he begins to unfold those qualifications. He does it very similarly in his letter to uh, Titus, um, because there again, he speaks of this office of elder. For this reason, I left you in Crete, that you might set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. If any man be above reproach, the a husband of one wife. And then he says for the overseer. So he mentions elders and then he calls them overseers. Now overseer is also translated in the older English as bishop, but he is referring to the same office. He does the same in Acts chapter 20, where in one verse he refers to him as elders. And the next verse he calls them overseers. And then he uses the word pastor. Now, um, you mentioned your friend from a Baptist church was asking you about the distinction. Um, in many Baptist churches today, though, this is changing. 
initially in the United States, when Baptists came here from Europe, they had not a single elder government, but a plurality of elders. Because uh, most Baptists today in the U.S. would trace themselves back to English Baptists. So like the Southern Baptist movement, which is the largest Protestant denomination in the nation, uh, came out of English Baptists where there was not a single elder, but a plurality of elders. Now, many of you know that the uh, Southern Baptist Convention actually started over the issue of slavery. Uh, there were certain Baptist churches in the South that felt like it was a uh, Christian's right to hold and embrace slaves. And they used a number of verses out of their context to justify what God would have considered and continues to consider to be an evil. Uh, when one of the um, churches in the South sent their son to the mission board in the North, this was before there was a division between Northern Baptists and Southern Baptists, which just one big Baptist denomination. But some, a church from the South in Alabama went to the mission board in the North to apply officially to go overseas as a missionary and they were rejected. And when that person was rejected because their family owned slaves, the denomination split into Southern Baptists and into Northern Baptists. Now, in the process of uh, time, because the Southern Baptists wanted to plant new churches and so forth, they graduated from a plurality of elders to a single elder form of government. And let me just say in fairness to Southern Baptists, they don't endorse slavery today. Uh, they are a denomination that has repented of their sin, has said that what they've done was a great evil and they've come clean. So I, 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 I want to say that parenthetically. But out of practice, when because they had it, 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 it's time went on and they had such a passion to win people to the Lord, uh, they graduated from a plurality of elders to a single elder. How did that happen? Well, because number one, when he gives the qualifications for an elder, he says he can't be a new believer. So there has to be a certain level of maturity and time that has passed in the person's life for them to even be considered for the office. Number one, because it takes time to grow spiritually. And so if someone came, say, to the town that we're in this morning and wanted to plant a church and got it up and running, um, there might be some years that would go by before there would be anyone who would be qualified to serve alongside that individual as an elder. Uh, so in practice, because there was such a church planning movement in their early, uh, really first hundred years, uh, they graduated to a single elder form of government. But I believe the biblical pattern is a plurality of elders where you don't have a single elder. So number one, your Baptist friend, he has in the church he attended, attends elders and deacons, but Probably it's an elder singular and deacons plural elders give oversight to the church. They rule the church. They shepherd the church. Uh, they are the ones who are involved principally in the spiritual care and the ruling of the local assembly. The word deacon is used in both a technical and non-technical way in the new Testament. He that would be great among you, let him be the deacon of all. Uh, we render it in our English Bibles as servant. But in many languages of the world, 
they just write deacon in their tongue. And it's the same word that they would use when Paul in first Corinthians, first uh, Timothy three says, uh, here are the qualifications for a deacon. But obviously if we're all called to be servants and yet there are certain qualifications that must be met to be a deacon, then there's a distinction between the office and the role. So the word deacon just means a servant, and there's actually not a specific job description given for deacons in the New Testament. Uh, They are just servants, but they are servants who are set apart amongst the rest of the body of Christ who are called to be servants. They are servants in that they meet the qualifications and they are working directly under the authority and the guidance of the elders in that church. So in the broadest sense, elders rule, they are involved in the overall care of the church and the deacons uh, serve at the will of the elders. They do the things that the elders ask them to do. Uh, In Acts chapter six, where you have, I think really the first uh, illustration of deacons in the church, because unlike the office of elder, which was an Old Testament office that carried into the church, the office of deacon did not exist in the Old Testament. So in Acts chapter six, uh, we discover that there are some people who are being neglected in the daily serving of food. And so the apostles who were not only apostles, but they were elders. Peter refers to himself as a fellow elder in first Peter chapter five. So while not all elders are apostles, all apostles are elders or pastors. And they recognize that since their principal role as apostles and as pastors was to be engaged in the shepherding and the feeding of God's people, that they themselves, as much as they would have liked to have waited on those tables, couldn't, because they would have given up some of the higher priorities that God gave them. And that's an important thing to recognize, because a lot of pastors today who are supposed to be engaged in the spiritual nourishment of the people of God are unable to really nourish the people of God because they're serving in all the wrong places. They're at every hospital bed, Great thing. I like to visit people in the hospital, but if I visited everyone in the hospital of this church that I uh, pastor, I, I would never be able to prepare my sermon. I'd like to counsel everyone in the church, but I can't. And so even amongst the elders, there's a chief elder. Sometimes we call them today the senior pastor. And uh, we will explore that when we begin our verse by verse exposition of the book of Revelation, because he speaks to seven different angeloi or pastors uh, of different churches um, in the book of Revelation chapters two and three. If you want to study this in a little more detail, if you go to uh, searchthescriptures.org, we have a course on on ecclesiology. Ecclesia is the word that is typically translated church in the New Testament. Sometimes it has some secular usages, but most of the time it's translated as church. And we have a whole study on the doctrine of the church. And one of the things that we look at is what does the Bible say about elders and deacons? So um, that's the short answer, but it's a good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. We have another live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Morning. Yes. Uh, our Bible study was, is church. 
studying Judges, and we were in Chapter 11, and Jephthah makes a vow about a burnt offering of the Lord gives him victory. And uh, the, the Bible study was uh, disagreeing on whether he, in fact, did offer his daughter as a burnt offering or not. Well, it, it's a good question. Um, I don't believe that he did um, for a number of reasons. Number one, it never says specifically that he sacrificed his daughter. And God expressly, of course, prohibited human sacrifice. Um, I'm assuming your Bible study probably looked at chapters like Leviticus 18 or Leviticus 20, or I think it's Deuteronomy 12, where uh, God makes it very, very clear that human sacrifice is an evil in his sight. Um, So number one, it never says that he uh, specifically sacrificed her. Uh, It does say that she wept for her virginity. So it appears that what he did was he exercised what Moses wrote in Leviticus 22 in the first eight verses, if you go back and study that, and that he redeemed one whom he dedicated. So he um, basically committed her to the Lord as an offering. And because of that, you know, she was not a, not a human offering uh, where he literally took her, her life Um, But he redeemed her, and in the process, uh, she was going to uh, never be married. Now, had, and and by the way, this this is what settles it for me when I look at this passage in in the book of Judges. Um, The best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And so when you come to the New Testament, um, you have some divine commentary on this. Did you guys uh, look at Hebrews 11 when you were there? Yes, we did. All right. So that should have settled it for the class, because in Hebrews 11, uh, 22, um, he, he, well, not, not 11, 22, let's see, 11, 32, if I remember. Uh, yeah, it says, and what more shall I say? For time will fail, fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah. Oh, okay. So if Jephthah had committed an actual human sacrifice. He would have done an evil that God calls an abomination in, in, the, in the Torah. And he, I can promise you, never, ever, ever would have made it into the hall of fame of faith. And yet he was a man of faith, one that God could esteem. Was he quick to make this vow? I think he was. Uh, but nonetheless, um, he did what he did, and he, God allows him to come into the Hall of Fame of Faith because ultimately and overall, he was a man of God. Certainly, when you look at the people in Hebrews 11, a number of them, if you've studied them, they all have problems because we all do. We're all sinners saved by the grace of God. But I can tell you this, no one, absolutely no one, makes it into Hebrews 11 who's a wicked, unrighteous person who's characterized by doing what the scripture would call an abomination. None of them. And so that, however you end up taking uh, judges, whether he simply, um, you know, redeemed her so that she could be married or he redeemed her so that uh, she would be dedicated uh, forever as a virgin to the Lord to serve God and un in an undistracted way, however you come down on that, 
Um, what is clear is that he did not commit a human sacrifice. Anyway, that's a good question. Glad their class is studying that. They're thinking. Yeah, Let's go to the next one. They're stacking up here. Definitely, definitely. Okay, very good. Um, uh, let's go to that question that we began to read earlier. Um, let's see. The uh, caller would like you to um, uh, answer the following. They know a pastor who preaches absolute heresy. And the pastor challenges that if anyone could prove him wrong, then he would love to debate him. This caller would love to know if you would ever want to challenge this pastor in a debate, or would he just uh, advise to move on? Well, um, you know, I'm not opposed to talking to unbelieving pastors. Uh, You know, there are times when it's appropriate. I've led some lost pastors to Christ. As far as I know, I've been privileged to lead six different pastors to Christ, men who were in the ministry, but who were lost. Now, that's not a common everyday experience. People who are heretics, who are preaching heresy, are there for a couple of reasons. Some have heard the truth, they've rejected the truth, and so they've believed a lie. And that's one of the underlying themes of Second Peter 2 and the book of Jude. Jude is the acts of the apostates. And how does a person become an apostate? There are some people who walk up to the edge of truth, don't really respond to that truth, and they end up believing a lie. And by the way, that is what is going to happen in a wide-scale, widespread way during the time of the Great Tribulation. Paul tells us that in Second. Thessalonians chapter two, that because men did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved, that God will send upon them a deluding influence that they might believe what is false. Uh, Jesus taught the same principle when he was dealing with uh, Jewish people in his day who repeatedly refused the revelation that he had plainly given them. And he says in John 12, um, I've just turned there and in verse 35, it says for a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light that darkness may not overtake you. He walks in the darkness, does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light in order that you may become sons of light. And then he says, these things Jesus spoke and he departed and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing him that the word of Isaiah, the prophet might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Then he says, for this cause, for what cause? Well, because they refused to respond to the revelation to the miracles. And he uses the word sign. It's the Greek word, Samion in the new Testament. There are three words for a miracle Uh, in the New Testament, one that speaks of the power of the miracle. Um, Dunamis, we get our word dynamite from it. Uh, Then there's the word terion, which is uh, used to describe uh, the awe that a miracle uh, produces. And then there's the word samion, which is the one that John repeatedly uses. And it's the word that's used to describe a miracle with a message. And so the miracles that they had witnessed pointed to the fact that he was Lord, but because they refused to respond to the light they had, Jesus warned that darkness would overcome them. And so because they would not believe, some of these leaders came to the point where they could not believe. And it says, God has blinded their eyes and he has hardened their hearts. So when you ask me about debating 
uh, some pastor you know who's an absolute heretic, one of the things that I would try to discern is what created his heresy. Has he had an experience with truth? Or is he a heretic? Maybe he's a Jehovah's Witness heretic or a Mormon heretic. And he's a heretic because they were the first ones to reach him. And he's never really heard the truth. You know, there's uh, two verses that kind of stand side by side that I often use in a case like this. Not necessarily a formal debate, but just in dialoguing with a person in terms of how do you respond. He says in Proverbs 26, do not, do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him. And then in the next verse, he says, answer a fool as his folly deserves, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So there is a time to answer a fool. There is a time not to answer a fool. Uh, W.A. Criswell, who uh, served as the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas for 50 years, really pretty amazing history in their early years. Uh, First two pastors uh, uh, served for 100 years between the two of them. The first pastor served from 1898 until 1948, and then Criswell took in in 1948, and he went 50 years. So they had two pastors in their first 100 years, which is really pretty remarkable. But he, I remember him um, speaking at Dallas Seminary, and he said one of the regrets in his life was that he debated uh, Madeline Murray O'Hare. Uh, he basically violated this text. He, um, he answered a fool who shouldn't have been answered. And so he went on to, uh, you know, a national debate with her, and it was just a big mistake. I heard her speak once in my life. I was on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ at the University of North Carolina. You know, when a man or even a lady who's hopefully ministering to ladies uh, speaks with God's pleasure, it's obvious. You can sense the power of the Holy Spirit behind that individual. There are some preachers who preach, but they preach with no power. They say words, but there's no anointing upon them. Well, if I've ever seen anyone anointed by the devil, I'm telling you it was this woman. There was a power there that was supernatural, supernaturally evil. And anyway, uh, so he answered uh, a a fool when he shouldn't have. So, you know, I'm not going to say anything about whether or not I would be interested in debating your pastor friend who's a heretic because I don't know the person and God might actually command me not to even speak with them, to dialogue with them because of why they are heretics. So that's the bigger question at hand. All right. Very good. Getting back to that uh, dictated question, the listener would like to know, uh, or actually, have you explained what the Sabbath day that honors God looks like in the form of work, recreation, and entertainment? And should a college student study on Sunday, or should we celebrate birthdays on Sunday? How do we avoid legalism while honoring the Sabbath? Well, it's a good question, and there's a lot of freedom here where a person can be convinced in their own heart, because unlike the Sabbath, Uh, which, again, I know you're using the term here somewhat loosely. Um, The Sabbath in the truest sense was the seventh day. Uh, It was given to Israel, not to the church, and it was highly regulated. There are things that they absolutely could not do on the Sabbath. When you come into the New Testament, 
Uh, and of course, you read a lot of writers, especially those who preached 100 years ago, and they would often refer to um, Sunday as the Sabbath day. And some of that was predicated on the way they formed their theology. They saw the church as replacing Israel and that the church was the new Israel. And they just transferred a lot of terminology that applied uniquely to Israel directly into the church. John Calvin was certainly guilty of doing this. He he tried to establish a theocracy much like in Israel. And so he burned at the stake Michael Silvanus for what he considered to be uh, heretical teaching. Now that, that was something that was unique, uh, to Israel in terms of dealing with, uh, punishing a heretic, but not for the church. And so the same is true in reference to the Sabbath. Uh, the new Testament Sabbath in quotes is the Lord's day. The first day of the week is when God's people gather Now, very often churches in America, for instance, gather Sunday morning at 11 o'clock. Did you ever wonder why Sunday morning at 11 o'clock for, oh my, 150 years in America, it was the only worship time that people generally had. Uh, Now churches have multiple services and different times, but why did they just offer 11 o'clock on Sunday morning? When I was a boy, virtually any church you went to, Uh, With the exception of the Catholic Church, it was Sunday morning at 11 o'clock. Why was that? Because it was after the uh, first milking and uh, the cows were done and uh, they had done the first milking. And and because of that, they met at 11 o'clock. Well, why did they uh, cover the communion table with a cloth? Some churches still do that. You go into the communion table that they have up front and it's covered in a white sheet and a couple of deacons come down, they lift it up and they fold it and put it aside nice and neat. And it's all kind of part of the ceremony. And what was the genesis of that? Well, typically flies in the church. And so you kept the, you kept the table clean from flies. Uh, so there are some things that we do that we just need to ask, why do we do it? But, you know, very often the early church met at night. Uh, they met at Sunday night. And you see that in the Acts. They certainly could have met any time during the day, but oftentimes they met at night. Why? Because remember, there were hundreds of thousands of people in the Roman Empire who were in slavery. When Rome conquered a people, they didn't put them all in prison. They made them slaves. And that's why they assigned slaves to families. And a slave might be a physician who came from another culture. He might be a teacher. He might be... Uh, you know, any profession that you could think of. And that's why in the early church, you had Christians who had slaves because Rome had assigned them a slave. And that's why um, Paul gives specific instructions of how a Christian slave should deal with his slave who is a believing master and so forth. And uh, there was some things that they inherited but it was not an endorsement of slavery by, by any stretch of the imagination. So because of that, they met often in the evening when people were free to meet. Um, did the slave work during the day? You better believe it. He didn't get a day off. He met. Now, I think ideally, as we expressed in early American history, uh, the principle of resting one day in seven is a principle that we should try to obey and to follow. And certainly we are commanded beyond a shadow of a doubt that on the first day of every week, we are to gather with the people of God. 
And that is a command of scripture. Now, there are some people who are unable to, they're homebound. Um, we live stream our services and I always get a computer reading immediately after the service, after both services, where people were viewing and what countries they were in, what states they were in. Uh, one of the things that concerns me sometimes is when I see maybe 40 homes from uh, Beaufort that are live streaming. And I think, uh, are, are these our people who are home with a sick child? If they are wonderful, I'm glad we can uh, utilize that technology in the day that we live in. But if this is someone who says, you know, honey, I don't feel like going to church today and let, let's just live stream Dr. Brogy and let's sit here in these Baca loungers, say, oh, go fix me a coffee and let's put our feet up and we'll just relax. And, you know, then, then you've got someone who's really crossed the line there. Bedside Baptist. That's right. That's right. You know, the Church of the Inner Spring or whatever it might be. So, um, you know, uh, we can be legalists. Uh, when I was a student, uh, I'll tell you what I did. And when it was a college student, I didn't do any homework on Sunday. I, I, I came to a point where I, after I'd been saved about a year and a half, and I just said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to really make Sunday a day where I rejuvenate spiritually. And I would go to a Sunday morning service in, in Boston, and I would go back for that Sunday night service. And sometimes I had an exam the next day, and it would be kind of tempting, but I would just get up early. And I discovered that when I did my work in six and, and what I found too, is that, you know, many a Saturday, maybe people were off at a football game or something, but because I had a higher commitment on Sunday, uh, I was in the library uh, studying, but that was okay with me because that's just what God had put in my heart. Now, just because he put that in my heart, I'm not saying that that's a standard that everyone should follow, but certainly one day in seven should be distinguished at the minimum by gathering with the people of God for worship and encouragement and, and um, service with God's people. Um, but beyond that, there, there need, you need to be convinced in your own heart what God gives you freedom to do. Um, so I hope that answers your question. When, when our kids were growing up, we didn't cut the lawn on Sunday. Uh, we, we set it aside as a day of uh, refreshment spiritually and focus and family time and we got all our chores done on saturday and things we needed to do um but i'm not a legalist either and i know there's a lot of freedom that the new testament gives just by observing the pattern that you find in the book of acts well we're out of time and we're glad you could have joined us uh, you did join us for this last hour ton of questions we didn't even get to but lord willing there'll be another tuesday <music> 